number one of chapter two. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up to? And he said, To Hebron. So right now from the very beginning, this is a great connection with David, who has uh, just recently come from penning a song, and the song was one of tribute to Saul, uh, of Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Those were the three sons that died on Mount Gilboa with Saul. And <clears throat> David administered uh, a severe judgment against one who, as an Amalekite, had feigned um, uh, a alliance with Israel when he, in fact, was uh, one of the scurrilous characters. He had a greater alliance with the Philistines. He would go in and mop up after them or just before them in battles that, that would uh, secure him uh, armbands and weapons and gold and those kinds of things. And so he was making a braggart's point about um, his uh, effect on Saul, actually claiming that he had killed Saul. And he thought that he would be rewarded for that. And uh, David did not reward him at all, executed him. David's beginning to realize that the role of a king is to execute with precision judgment that is righteous. That's a term that's appropriate. There's the execution of evil, but there's the execution of judgments which are righteous. And when we execute judgments that are righteous, then on the other play of words, there are less executions necessary for wickedness. And so God is endeavoring even in that, to spare us from consequence. The poetry that David penned, which is basically called the Song of the Bows, is a tribute to one who maliciously pursued him. He was innocent, and this has been a 10-year pursuit. His son-in-law married to one of his daughters, very likely the youngest, Mikhail or Michael, and he hasn't seen her for probably 10 years. He's been on that kind of a journey, oppressed, under great distress, taking under his wings multiplied hundreds of people, warriors that have followed him, who have had families that have merged into this traveling unit, been secured at different areas for domestic safety. But David is a tired warrior. But God's not through with him yet. However, God is going to establish him. But it's going to be, as we find out, in increments of trusting him. It's not simply going to be handed over to him, though everything suggests historically he is that man. He is the appointed, anointed heir of the throne of Israel. But there are things that yet need adjusting. 
And in this regard, too, there's a picture because Jesus is the apparent heir to sit on ultimately the throne, which will be established in Israel one day soon for a thousand years. Even now he reigns in heaven. But the picture is there are things yet to be put in order before ultimately that transaction can happen. So if there's anybody that is more anxious than David, who now inquires of the Lord, it would be the Lord himself who longs for his bride. And we have been with frequency using that term, even in this Easter message. You know, I think the title was something that relates to love. I'm trying to find out in my mind what that was, but I noticed that we talked about the resins, the precious ointments that were used to convey both love and purity. And it's it's right now in this area where where David has a great passion and love for God, and he has a great passion and love for the people of God, and his desire really is uh, to move in to that office. But what I'm, again, finding intriguing right now is he's making inquiry. We know that he has a priest, right, Abiathar, and he has for himself as well a prophet, which David is as well. And yet this seems to be right now not seeking the counsel of them, but actually having a communique with God personally. And I think that that's rewarding because isn't that really what we all want? I know that we can say I'm I'm dependent upon the word given by somebody like you, and that's what I can do. But I'm realizing as well that I'm just one voice. The Lord has made his voice resoundingly louder than mine, not simply just in the exposition, that means making this make sense, but because he touches us deeply in the spirit. And I just think these questions that we're learning how to ask and how to respond even in studying Samuel's life is just very rewarding. David right now is is not wanting to do things with his own strategy. Uh, He's tried that before and he's failed doing things that seemed okay doing things that others perhaps chided him into doing, or what even Satan may have tempted him into doing. Evidence of that is not yet suggested, but he has erred, and therefore if it's contrary to what God uh, would have desired of him, then we can certainly say he was vulnerable to the wiles of the enemy. While in battle against the enemy, there is a spiritual force that is at work to create distraction, disheartenment, and confuse ultimately the battle plan of God in our life. So this is David actually connecting very precisely with the Lord. And because right now it would seem to me that he is hearing from the Lord because he's making a personal appeal to God, I just think that's really special. Those that wait upon the Lord, Awesome. How are you waiting upon the Lord? In prayer. How else? Opening the word. How else? Listening for the word. But the inquiry that we see here is just a genuine, I need directions from you, God.
And so as he gets it, he receives these instructions very precisely. He makes this inquiry of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? So there are many cities in Judah. Remember, proper Israel is north. Judah is going to be the area south. And right now he's saying, uh, I'm not sure how to pick on this one. So is this my locale? One would think that what he would be doing is taking the northern section immediately because Saul is seemingly out of the equation. But rather than make that presumption, he has been in the southern area. And so he's simply making this appeal as to of the cities of Judah. Do I go there? Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And so this is actually going to be the precise word and the precise place that now David knows he will be situating himself. Could he be grieved? It's hard to say. We don't have evidence of that. He just wants to be in the right spot, right place. Right now he has been in the Ziglag area. And though we do have evidence that he has moved from it, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be a temptation to return to it, but it's it's under Philistine authority. And he now has to make sure that his severance with King Achish is through. He's no longer going to be under the presumption of being an ally with him, but he will be an adversary of Achish and the Philistines. And especially after what this battle would have done. When they killed Saul and when they took out multiplied hundreds of warriors, this was a defining moment in what David now would pledge literally his life to do, and that's clean up a mess. A people group that were defilers and rebels, and he is going to be established as a king that will not tolerate it. He will be battle-ready, and he will be victorious with God. So David, in verse 2, went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. We know that originally there were three to four hundred men that, that uh, knitted their hearts with David. And so these men now have families. And so this is quite um, a community of followers of David. And so he has great responsibility as as he makes this move. He has to consider every part of this. David, verse 5, sent messengers to the men of Jabesh, Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness, it says, to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. You see, he found out that um, in the battle, as the bodies had been removed and desecrated, hung at Bethshan, um, there wasn't anything that he was able to do, obviously, because he heard about this well after the fact. So it came to his attention that this people group, not wanting to have Saul and his sons remaining on a wall in which they were fastened, desecrated, proper burial, 
so as we've said before, uh, these men went, and it's something like a 25-mile round trip under night, under the, the blanket of darkness, that they went to this very large uh, community, a Philistine encampment, and um, risked their lives to be able to take back um, these warriors of Israel. A father who was the king, Jonathan, his eldest son, and then the two brothers, Abinadab and Malkishua. That would have been quite a chore, actually. I mean, in evaluating what it would take to pack uh, bodies like that, that would have been not only strategic, but it would have been very exacting on how to do it in a way in which there would be no attention drawn to it, but there would be plenty of sweat and blood in the doing of it. And this tells you that their heart really was set on honoring God. Why? Because God had authored their lives as their lives had been authored. It was a sacred life. In that regard, it was a triumphant life, even though there was tragedy especially in Saul's disposition. But as we look back before, David held nothing against Saul. This is what we need to see. Others may have, if it were not David, said, deserves it. And I don't care about him. I'll do something with Jonathan, whom I did have a relationship with, but his father, no way. David's heart was touched that all four of them would have found tribute and a willingness for others literally to risk their lives to bring them back. And that's, that is what is happening right now. And so <clears throat> as David is aware of this and he blesses them, verse 6, And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. And I like that phrase because there are times when we're not sure what we are able to do for someone, but we can say with confidence, God is going to repay you for this act of kindness, assured. And I believe that's very scriptural. In this, though, we also see the heart of David to apply with his authority and his wealth, his position, a blessing that he can impart. And that's always just a very special work of God. I believe we can do both, but it certainly ought to be that we are able to pronounce blessings in faith with promise to people who have done great sacrificial work for the Lord. Well, how do you know if they have? Well, how do you know they didn't? You hear of an exploit. You observe what perhaps you, you were able to see. Evidence that something happened and it wasn't you. It wasn't them. It was that person. It was that group. And so what you do is you commend them for that selfless act. And you reward them by bringing them before the presence of God. 
You just say, let me pray for you for what you've done. And it articulates with all sincerity a blessing that God will give to them. I believe that's very important in our faith. We have a very live, active, transactionary faith that what we say with our mouth because our heart just agrees with the work of the Spirit and what we feel in our heart somebody has done for God, it can be anchored in the assurance of a promise. I appreciate those people who pray for me. I know people have appreciated prayers that I as well have spoken before God on behalf of them. And it really is a wonderful way to live out our faith authentically is to pray for them. And if something else comes out of it, maybe it's a coupon to get a cup of coffee, a pizza, whatever it may be, a dinner somewhere, great. But there isn't anything more meaningful, in my opinion, than praying blessings over someone's life with the absolute certainty that God shall reward them. Therefore, verse 7, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. They no doubt are grieving the loss of Saul. David is simply reaffirming Saul is lost. There is a change right now that is in the that is in the real time sense, something that you're going to be a part of. And that change is going to require of you a strength. That's basically saying. And a valiant disposition, a willingness to do once more what you did for Saul, for Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. I have been anointed, and I'm looking for guys just like you. And I would expect nothing less from you. And so that's very often what God does for us in the transition of moving from one event to the other. God doesn't want us to be discouraged about the change. There's change going on right now. And if you listen to this group, you get one opinion. You listen to that group, you get another opinion. I'm trying to right now listen to God so that I simply get his opinion on what's going on. But in these times, transition change, which is dramatic, which even at times emphasizes death. God would say, you be valiant, you be strong. Don't you give up because I'm still king. And that's what Dave's saying. Though there is no longer Saul, who was king, about a 40-year reign, there is a king. You haven't been left behind. And it's me. And David's saying that with absolute authority. Jesus said that too with absolute authority. Uh, yeah, I'm king. Yep, I'm Lord. Mm-hmm. I'm Savior. Yeah, I'm Messiah. Hmm. Lamb works well for me too. Lion of the tribe of Judah. I got that one as well. And yet there were only a few 
and the multitude of people that believed him on earth and followed him in the tenure of their life. David's in likewise a picture of that. There will be doubters right now as he is able to say with confidence, I am the man that now you need to look to. And Jesus would say, I am the God that now you need to look to. As you have studied the scriptures and understood me as a man, as God who walked on earth, I am the God man who you now must look to in the transition of your life right now. A life that for many of us turned upside down. What, in like two months? A month and a half? And we're, how could this be? Because it is. There, there, there are factors that we can look at, and God knows them better than we do. But if we try to encourage ourselves on the factors and the presumptions and opinions of people, highly discouraged, I say, pray and say, Lord, I'm into the transition. You're king. And so however you want to take over in, in this area, it's yours. It's not mine. Because whatever I've had has always been given by you. And so it's a wonderful picture, actually, that David is giving. But he's making no apologies about the expectation. Strengthen your hands, he says. Be valiant. You're still in the battle. I need you. You're the, you're the exact kind of person and a team member that I want. And so you have to realize that, that we have to be about uh, encouraging those who are team members in God's army and not letting the situation cause them to fail in the exercise of their faith. We are not their gods, and, and we can't pull them by the neck with a line wrapped around it. But we can say things that I think steeped in prayer can pull them out of a slump and say, you know what? Really, I've got nothing to lose because it appears that I've lost it all anyways. I've lost my king. I've lost my friends. We've lost seemingly the battle to the Philistines. And David says, you follow me. I'm going to take care of you and God's going to bless you. Maybe for some of you out there tonight, that's what you need to hear. I need to hear it even from my own lips. And actually, it's just the voice of the Lord coming through the scriptures that I'm reading. But it's a great picture, isn't it? So where does this go right now? So right now, what we're finding out is there are complications. Because there's one son left, and we're going to find out about him. And there is a cousin left, and we're going to find out about him. And then there are some nephews left, and we're going to find out about them. And all of these things David has to work through. He's got a lot of things administratively to work through. But what at least we see in chapter 2 in the beginning is that he knows who to go to. He's going to God. He's taking notes, and he's making presentations to the Lord and to hear from him on the way that he is to go and the manner and means by whom he is to employ. Abner, it says in verse 8, the son of uh, Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, 
the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. David realizing all the way back when he was at least 15 years of age that on a special occasion there was a prophet that came into his town as his family summoned him from the hill regions while he was shepherding his father's sheep. And there was a feast being thrown and all the brothers had passed before this prophet of God who thought with his eyes he could detect who would be an anointed person that ultimately would be king because even back then Saul had been declined. He had failed. And so here David comes in as this young boy, probably flesh still from running to get back home to see what dad wanted, only to find his head being anointed with oil and to be given the leg, the chosen meat sample. And anybody there who understood the history of an anointing and a special feast would have said, Ah, this is interesting. And some of them would have had a hard time believing it. His older brothers, in fact, did. They knew the implications, but they chose to deny it. The implication was, Our, our youngest brother is very special with God right now. How could that be? All he does is take care of dad's sheep. Maybe they would have done well to have done a better job at taking care of dad's sheep. But David was found as the one who had a heart that followed after God. And that's the key point to be made right now. So this individual that's on the scene is actually in the proper lineage to be able to resume the kingdom. That's the way that a monarchy would work. It would be the next eldest son in line to take over where a father would need to abdicate or die in office in overseeing his country. And Abner right now, who actually is a cousin to Saul, and very likely not at the same age, probably closer to the age of Jonathan, about 57 years of age. There was really only about 17 years that separated Saul from Jonathan. He was a young father in how he started his family. And so actually Jonathan and Abner would have been probably very shoulder to shoulder in their kinship together. But it was General Abner. And he was really in many ways, a, he was a great general, a great strategist. He was very much interested in protecting the throne. He understood that there was obviously a judgment against Saul but he stood the course until it was defined ultimately by a judgment on Saul. And there's something to be said about that. Again, it's faithfulness. And where he was able to weigh out the actions and attitudes of Saul, he was also able to see from a distance and even at times very up close, the heart of David. But his peculiar dilemma right now is realizing that he is in a political position 
and he has still a military responsibility. And when you're wired like that, you follow protocols. And God allows those protocols to be satisfied. And so very often in events that, that at times would demand a difference in our actions, God suspends them until it plays out. And it had to play out. While this is happening, David's confidence in the Lord is being matured. How much more mature can it need if he's been tracking with the Lord for 10 years thus far? He's 30, by the way. So our character right now, and I say that with all due respect, Ishbosheth is 40. So there's a 10-year difference. And David's able to see that even and say, hmm, I can respect that. As opposed to pounding his chest like an ape and going, I disrespect that. David has been given really just a tribe right now who are in allegiance with him. And the majority are now with Abner and the last son in this lineage of the monarchy. So David has to do one thing, strengthen himself in the Lord. He has to not move too quickly to get ahead of himself, which he's realized before has cost him. There are two situations in which it did cost him dearly and actually in which the lives of men were lost. And that was when he went to Nob, when he claimed Goliath's sword given to him by the priest, who ultimately was Abiathar's father, and 80 priests were killed by Saul for him coming in and eating the holy bread and seemingly from Saul's perspective conspiring with David to take him out. And David grieved for that, used it as a principal point later, but even Jesus would use that illustration about David's heart to go in and eat sacred bread, even though there was a consequence to it. And the other was when he feigned insanity to be protected in Gath, whose king saw him and said, that's David, as it was being whispered. And it was a shame to his reputation. So David understands moving too quickly can contradict what God wants to do patiently. And we all have an impatience. Test it out next time you're in line for a burger and you're seven cars back and then there's three cars that pulled in behind you. You can't do anything. And this just happens to be one of those nights where everybody called into sick except one person that doesn't even know how to use the intercom. That's a test of patience. You can't get out of it. You can't go forward. You're just there. And how you handle it, though, is actually a really good clue about how spiritual you might be in that moment. We all get tested in particular ways that actually can validate how deeply spiritual we are. But right now, this for that move to take over the monarchy is not right now prescribed for David. It's a whole different ministry of learning 
preparatory skills for handling an entire nation. He's already seen what it's like when he gets his guys ticked off. They want to stone him. And the Lord is basically saying to David, I can spare you of that kind of an uprising, that kind of a challenge, if we go at it my pace and you follow my directions as you did in the beginning of this chapter, he might say. So even for some of us right now, it might be that that is what the Lord is saying. But remember, as long as it is put before the Lord, you're allowing the pages to turn, and you're asking that his will be done. And if anything contrary to that is being nudged by the Holy Spirit, then you don't insist. And you don't persist. You just resign. So these factors are right now in play with these particular men. And it tells us that this young king at 40... But he is. He's younger than his brothers. They were much older. It's in his hands. And Abner right now is assuring that that's who it gets passed to because he's a military man. Protocol counts. Smart salutes. Obedience. That's what he's doing. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This tells us now how long David will be waiting ultimately to merge all of Israel. But in the time being, as you advance through verses 12, through um, the close of the chapter up to chapter 3, it gives us <clears throat> encouragement in terms of what David ultimately was able to have affirmed. And that is people that were backing him. Even when the majority of the nation turned their back on David. And by the way, his reputation would have been definitely pronounced. They knew him. He was, he was a war hero, war hero <laughs> unlike any. Whatever else I was trying to say, but he was a war hero. And he was a singer of songwriters. He was in a luthier. He invented songs and he invented the instruments to play them. He was a skilled, skilled, skilled man to be admired. And they would have known surely that Samuel, who was at that time the greatest prophet that Israel had known, would have not had any doubt to the occasion in which David had been anointed. So David could have suffered a great disappointment. Why are they being like this? Why has my life been so hard? Ten years on the run, and all I want to do is satisfy God's call on my life. And I've got what? How many years left? Now, he wouldn't have necessarily been foretold this we're getting a preview of actually how many years it would take. David has to take one day at a time, a month at a time. He has to have on his heart God's timing. He's learning that, learning administration. 
Abner the son of Nur, uh, Nur on verse 12, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanam to Gibeon, and Joab the son of Zariah, as the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon, and so they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Now, this is an interesting event that's happening right now. And the reason that it's interesting is that as Abner is the general of Israel's army, Joab is David's general, what we would say the general of Judah. Abner is the cousin of Saul. So he's an older guy, probably, again, like I said, about 57. I wouldn't say much younger and I wouldn't say much older. Joab and two of his brothers that will be introduced here is actually a nephew of David. So he probably does not have a grang of his beard. He's probably right now, this would be a sister of David. We don't really hear of them. What we hear about in the scriptures is the seven brothers and David being the eighth. But there's a sister and she had Joab and the two brothers that will be identified. They're nephews of David, but they're warriors. And so they basically have joined with David at somewhat of an early age. And it's presumed that probably they've been serving with David at least 10 years. At least Joab has for sure. And so you've got battle-hardened guys on both sides of this. Israel by far has the greatest numerical advantage. David has the lesser advantage as far as the men that are following him. But both of them have skilled warriors. And I think they're trying to figure out, huh, how do we do this? And so one of the things we see here is actually a strategy that's never been employed. Not that we've ever seen in scripture. They're literally almost like on, if you would, picture a football stadium. And one group of men of 12 are on one side of the sidelines on the benches. And the other group of 12 are on the other side of the field on the benches sitting at 12. And then they have this strategy that what will happen is the benches will basically be cleared and they're going to meet strategically in the center and battle it out. And this has not been done before. There's nothing that we've seen historically that would say, how did you guys come up with that? And and basically what they're trying to do is determine in this creative plan, who's going to be the next king? Is it going to be Abner's guy? Or is it going to be Joab's guy? These are two military guys. And their strategy actually doesn't work at all. Because the 12 guys go, they meet in the center, we're told. And as they meet in the center, they each grab the other person's head that they're facing off with. And then they drive a sword through each other simultaneously. It's like, how did you guys come up with that plan? <laughs> I mean, even dueling had at least a, an odds that the better shot would win. 
or even sword fighting. But these guys just come up to each other. They grab each other behind the neck, probably holding onto the hair, and they drive a sword through each other at this pool that supposedly this predicament was going to be resolved at. And so what it leads to right now is rather than them fighting against the Philistines, they now have a civil war between themselves. The years that David has been on the run right now will persist in this time in which two families of Israel, Judah, Israel proper, including Benjamin, they will be at war with each other. And guess who gets to look on? The Philistines are going to look on. They're going, this is great. They're doing to each other what we've been trying to do to them. They're doing quite well. Applause. And so one of the things that the enemy does, he tries to create division within groups. Within the home, that's where he likes to work first. Within the church, loves that. Within the government, that works really well for him. And when these three things are being divided by people grabbing each other's heads and literally running each other through simultaneously, it not only is destructive, but it's confounding. People go, why? What, what came out of that? And the scriptures say blood came out of that. Blood and loss and a continuance in moving unnecessarily towards a civil war in what is a spiritual warfare necessity to see what God wants to do, not what men can do. When men come in and try to strategize how they can win the war, then God has to come in and say, that's not the way that I do it. As David had sought me in the beginning in chapter 2, Joab, you should have taken note of that. And however you made this decision and however Abner agreed with it, it's not the way that I work. And that's the thing is that David sets a model and, and the majority of the time that he sets the model, if it is not followed by his men, then there is a disaster. If David does not set the model and the men, again, move in that way as well, there's disaster. So David sets the model but these two generals right now defy logic. They defy being able to uh, seek the Lord on what to do. There's not even statesmanship in this. It's an unnecessary loss of life, and it's a celebration on behalf of the Philistines who will hear word of this bloodbath. So those are the principles right now on this, and we'll pick it up next Thursday in seeing how this, again, moves David to ultimately find the heart of Abner being given over to him. Because what we will see is that the strategies of Abner as a general will not be working. But at the same time, the... Um, the particular indiscretions of Joab will catch up with him as well. He has his own problems. And sometimes there can be that in authority where it creates a problem because it's become more important to you than submission to the Lord. And Abner, we're going to find, actually 
begins to have a tender heart and a resignation. But unfortunately, he will lose his life by what will be a subverted and calculated attack by Joab and his other brother because of a situation in which they took offense. So it's really great as far as understanding principles of discipline, principles of patience, and really being able to trust God in the promises that he has spoken to us, regardless of the circumstance. We can really be triumphant.